Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First package in today's list is K-Codex, which at the end of the previous episode I said was probably about video codecs and maybe audio codecs and how exciting that was and maybe I would be able to speak about video codecs because that's something that I, well, used to deal with quite a lot, a lot less so now. But anyway, this has nothing to do with video codecs. K-Codex has nothing to do with audio encoding or video encoding. It has everything to do with character encoding. Surprise, surprise. I, I legitimately didn't know that at the end of the previous episode. That's why I was talking about all the other things. I just assumed that it was the kinds of codecs that I used to deal with. Um, and that's not really the case, which is fine. This is um, just as interesting, I'm sure, although I know considerably less about it. Um, what I will say, just in case you don't know, codec is a tech term and it, it, it's the combination of two words, code and decode, or maybe encode and decode, I'm not sure. But those two terms, those ideas, are smashed together into a quick and easy one phrase codec. This is K-codec, so we can surmise correctly that it's codecs uh, that are designed by the KDE, the, the KDE framework. And of course, that is exactly what it is. So K-Codex is this package, and it contains uh, mostly header files, to be honest. A couple of CMake things, a couple of Python utilities for the um, K-Py... You know, uh, what is it called now? The KDE Python project. But mostly header files, which bizarrely point to... Well, so they're framework files, which then strangely point over to the header files. I'm, I'm not sure why they link them that way. So you, you've got, for instance, k-codex, k-codex, you open up k-codex and it says include k-e- or no, yeah, k-codex.h. Uh, there's one called k-email address and that you open that and it says include k-email address.h. So I'm not sure the purpose there. It must be some subtlety of of um, maybe the IDE or or something. I'm not sure if the framework wants to do it that way. But anyway, there, it's mostly header files and things like, I don't know, kemailaddress.h. If I take a look at that, open that up, it's, it's a bunch of definitions of methods that have functions like validate an email address and split a comma-separated list of email addresses and splits a given address into a name and an email address and a comment, an optional comment, I think. Optional? Anyway, a comment. Um, now these aren't the actual, th this, this is just a header file. So this is naming the methods, providing the syntax, and documenting the, the input and output. Uh, if you want to actually see the work that gets done here, you have to look at a bunch of other files uh, because that's what header files do they define they define uh d information declarations uh and syntax for or or whatever they need to define for code files maybe that's something that this could 
be a, a good topic for because I don't know that much about Codex uh, in terms of like character conversion and things like that. I've never done that before, but uh, I could at least explain what a header file does because there have been a lot of header files lately. Um, I don't know a good example, but let's try to generate one here. So let's let's say that I've got a file called myheaderfile.h, and in that file, I'm going to define something that a bunch of different code files might need. And that could be anything. It could be, for instance, in this, in, in, in what we're looking at here in Kcodex, it, it's defining methods that, that it gives a name and it gives a result and it tells you what the arguments are for that, for that method and so on. So these are snippets. I mean, the actual conversion doesn't happen in the header file. It's just giving you pieces. So, for instance, if I wanted to define a string that read KDE for whatever reason. So I could do a hash include greater than or whatever, less than ampersand hash six zero semicolon. Um, so whatever that character is, less than I think. String.h greater than, right? So angle bracket, angle bracket, string.h. Uh, so we're including that in this header file. And then I'm going to define a string. So I'm going to say string uh, x equals quote KDE close quote semicolon. And that's actually not going to work. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the line and do a standard std colon colon string x equals KDE. That's the header file. Now I'm going to open a file called mycodefile.cpp and here I'm going to do a bunch of the, this is going to be the actual code, so I'm going to do uh, include iostream, include um, myheaderfile.h in quotes, so include, so hash include quote myheaderfile.h close quote, uh, include string again, I'll, I'll probably need that, um, that'll probably be it. And then I'm going to do using namespace standard std semicolon, and then our class, or not our class, our um, our, our 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 code, our method, our function, uh, int space main parentheses int space arg c comma car c h a r star star arg v close parentheses open curly brace. And I think I'll just do, uh, let's do a little for loop here. We'll do four parentheses int i equals zero, semicolon i less than arg c. So as long as we have an argument to look at, or a value, so something that, a parameter that the user has typed in at the terminal, uh, then, well, first of all, increment the, the count, uh, plus plus i, parentheses, curly brace. So now we're in the for loop. C out, less than, less than, x, less than, less than, no, actually, no. We'll do C out, less than, less than, arg v bracket i, close bracket, so whatever the next value is, and then less than, less than, x, less than, less than, le less than, end l semicolon. We can close the curly brace there, return zero semicolon, and close the curly brace, and now we're done. So now when we compile that, we have to do g++ dash i, capital I for include, and I'm just going to put a dot. So it's dash capital I dot, meaning that 
among the include files that I want my program to be aware of, or the compiler to be aware of while it's assembling this code, I want to include the current directory. And the reason I'm including the current directory, of course, is because I just put my header file .h here in this current directory. So the compiler needs to know where to find that include. Now, iostream and string, it already knows where to look for those, so doesn't matter. Um, if, it, if, it, if it did matter, I could also include that. I could, I could define that as an include, but it, it doesn't matter. Those are the default, that's the default include path. Uh, the thing that I'm compiling, of course, is my code file.cpp. It compiles, and now I can do uh, .slash a.out, which is the um, default output name of what we just compiled. So a.out, and I'll type in the word or the string, hello. And then I get, oh, I forgot about spaces. But anyway, I get one big long string that says, hello KDE, all, all one string. How did it know to append, uh, to, yeah, to append KDE to my hello? Uh, can I preserve spaces if I put that in quotes? Yeah, okay. So there, I cheated. A.out, quote, hello, space, close quote. Now I have hello, KDE. So how did it know to append KDE? Well, it knew that because in my header file, which then got compiled into the code, the string X was set to KDE. So that's what header files are. Um, you might wonder why they exist and the answer is that usually they contain a lot more than one random string. There's, you know, look at Kcodec. There's a bunch of header, f uh, a bunch of information in the header file. I mean, a lot of it, frankly, is comments, but there's uh, an enum that's defined, and there's methods and all kinds of things that are set there in that header file. Meaning that when you're writing code, if you include that header file, you get a bunch of sort of standardized definitions and and required parameter and syntax of those parameters and and that way at least in 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 this case you have consistency across all of your different KDE applications so when one KDE application is referencing you know i don't know is valid email address or whatever i mean i i i've closed that file now so i don't know the exact string but um you know the name of some of some output or, or the name of some method, they're all the same because they're all referencing the same header file. And that, that provides a lot of consistency and, and obviously a lot of compatibility because now that method across all of KDE is the same and it has the same requirements for the input. It has the same uh, output that it's going to give you. And, and that's great. I mean, that's, that's a really significant, I would imagine a very significant way to organize a very, very large software project with lots of contributors. Like, how are you going to make sure that no one re-implements the thing that splits an email address into its component part? Well, this is one way that you could do that. Okay, so that's K codec, uh, K codex, um, plural, and, and that's K-C-O-D-E-C-S, codex. And next one in the list is a color chooser, K color chooser. K color chooser is exactly what it sounds like. It is a um, an eyedropper that you. It's a graphical application. You launch it. You get a little eyedropper, and with that little eyedropper, you can just sort of roam around your screen, find a color that you like, hover your cursor over that color, and you see the value. 
you can click to sort of set that value as the current value. And then and you have that value here in your K color chooser uh, window. So I just clicked on sort of an orange of Audacity's logo and I got red 255, green 121, and blue 1. Maybe I didn't need it in that format. Well, that's okay. It converts it automatically for you to HTML as well. Uh, HTML as well. So FF7901 is what that translates to. You also get it in HSV values, 28, 254, 255. So three different methods of expressing the same data right there on your screen. Oh wait, there's another uh, expression of that, which is the actual visual expression of that color uh, uh, as calculated by, by your, your screen. And so you get to see sort of like that color as a big color swatch. I have to say, color K Color Chooser is well an, an implementation of K Color Chooser, which I, I I more often use it as a little plasmoid widget in my panel. But either way, like that functionality is one of the things that has sold me on Linux for I don't know how long. Like the discovery of how prolific is that the right word? Prolific, yeah, uh, prolific color choosers are on Linux desktops was just a revelation to me. It was such a, a big deal. And it still is to this day. I, I still find myself referencing colors on screen a lot more often than you might expect. Heck, I do it more often than I expect. Um, but it's just such a convenient way to get to, to match colors, really. I mean, it's just, it, it is a great way to do that. Now, it's important to know that if you are, say, designing something f that, that has brand guidelines, um, it's important to know that the, the color that you're seeing follows the brand guideline. Because, I mean, that's the absolute, that's the absolute response. And, and this, of course, is in your, this is, this is within your screen, as it were. Uh, in other words, that color to you, to your human eyes, seeing that color on a monitor that anybody could have set up, that might not look like the, the quote-unquote right color, the correct color to you. Under certain lighting, it might look different. Uh, at a, a, a certain brightness of your monitor, it might look different. So getting what the computer sees that color as is really, really important because you cannot trust your eyes. It's just, it, you can't, you can't do it. So this is a really important method of confirming that your, that the color swatches or the color settings that you are using match some other baseline color setting. It doesn't do anything sort of for alignment of your monitor. That's not what this is about. It's just, if you download an image from somewhere and it's using a, a color blue, that to you looks a little bright and you know that it's supposed to be kind of dark and rich, well, break out K-Color Chooser, get a sample of that and see what the computer sees it as. Because the computer is sending the, di the, the, the bits that it is sending. Your monitor is interpreting it or, or displaying it one way or the other, and your eyeball is seeing it, and your brain is processing that depending on a bunch of different factors. But... The, you you just need to know what are the settings what are the what what is this color supposed to be what is this color supposed to be set to what what is it sending what what kind of data is is contained in this color that's what I was trying to say uh, so it's it's hugely hugely useful K color chooser and I use it as I say more often than one might think it is one of those go to applications for me so K color chooser it's a huge hugely big deal for me. Uh, the, the minute I'm on a Linux desktop that I 
that I'm not familiar with, if I can't locate very promptly the, the, the color chooser application, then I install one immediately. And I also consider, you know, I, I think about my choice there. Like, is this the right distribution for me? Because uh, it doesn't have a color chooser readily available. So yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and there are there are lots of different ones. You know, you don't you don't have to run KDE Plasma Desktop to have a color chooser. There are lots of different color choosers out there. Stuart um, from uh, well, I know him or I know of him from Lug Radio way way back when that was still a thing. Um, he's got a color chooser that he wrote, which is quite nice. So they're out there. Uh, you just have to maybe possibly look for them. Okay, next up is k-completion. This is, guess what, a bunch of header files. Yeah, this is um, a bunch of header files to help with completion of like file names and things like that. So I don't know if you remember me raving about Dolphin, the file man manager Dolphin, but I, I do love Dolphin. And one of the really nice features of Dolphin is that in certain configurations, and I think you have to activate this, I don't think this is the default, could be misremembering. Um, in certain configurations, if you if you have a, um, a breadcrumb trail or a, a location bar in Dolphin, which I, again, I think by default, it's just a location bar that tells you where you are, but you can go into uh, configure, yeah, configure, uh, configure Dolphin, there it is. Configure Dolphin, you can go in there somewhere and tell it to use an user editable, you know, allow the user to edit the location bar. I cannot find where that is now. Maybe maybe that's the default now. Maybe that's not something that you have to configure anymore because I'm not seeing that option. But it could just as easily be an option that I'm just, um, my eyes are sort of just skipping over. Yeah, I don't see it. So maybe that is. Anyway, so you can just type in like slash home slash, oh, Klaatu, slash, uh, let's go to my, I don't know, downloads folder. And so if I start typing capital D, it already starts, it, it auto detects the possible completions for that based on the, the, the things that I'm, that I have in my folder. So the decks, demo, desktop, documents, downloads. So actually I'm going to go into decks instead of downloads because I'd rather look at Magic the Gathering deck files than a bunch of random downloads. So here's a bunch of files that I have in this folder. And if I wanted to, um, if I wanted to open it with an application, uh, an other application, because by default, it wants to open up it, it, open it in Emacs, then I could go to the choose application and, and one, oh no, actually that doesn't do it. Okay. Well, I guess that's where that ends then. Okay. Uh, I thought, I thought the open with other applications had that same functionality. Either way, the point is that when you start going into an editable field in many KDE applications, it has the ability to sort of auto complete what you're typing. And it's not auto completion based on, um, like just an arbitrary dictionary. Uh, it, it is based on, on specific things. So um, this, these header files provide the, the different implementations of that. So there's uh, completion, there's history, uh, things to look at the history, there's um, sortable listing, there's K-line edit. I assume that's what you're doing when you're 
entering it into the field. I'm not sure. Combo box stuff, uh, completion box. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different ones. Completion matches. Um, so that's it's a hugely useful little um, not library but collection of include files of header files, and and we've just talked about what header files are, so we we know what that is. And that's kcompletion. Next up is kconfig. kconfig provides an advanced configuration system. It's made up of two different parts, kconfig core and kconfig GUI. kconfig core provides access to the configuration files themselves. kconfig GUI provides a way to hook widgets to the configuration so that they are automatically initialized from the configuration and automatically propagate their changes to their respective configuration files. There you go. So let's look at this uh, kconfig package here. kconfig. Is it a bunch of header files? Yes, it is. It's a bunch of header files and a couple of things for Python, it looks like. Oh, and there's a library in there. There's a library. Um, shared object. And yeah, I mean, I just read what it claims it is and I'm going to believe that that is what it is. So K configuration persistent application settings. I mean that's always important. Um, on a related note there the, the next the next package is K config widgets which is uh, let's look here header files again and this is uh, essentially it's providing the easy to use classes to create configuration dialogues as well as a set of widgets which uh, uses kconfig to store their settings. Configuration is really important and it's, it can be a tricky tricky thing because uh, it's one of those at least I find and and this doesn't mean a whole lot because I, I'm not I don't do this all day um, but I find that when sitting down to define a configuration you do kind of have to you find yourself peering into the future a lot, a lot more than is comfortable because you don't know the future. You don't know exactly what your application is going to need to remember in for a configuration. That can be difficult to, to figure out like the best format for, for your configuration. Kconfig helps you figure that out just by, by sort of, I mean, the KDE framework knows itself pretty well. And so having the ability to to sort of know all of the different things that you are going to probably have to track for a KDE application, I imagine would be very useful. Uh, and I say that very much assuming that that's the case because I've never written a KDE application. I've never written an application that hooks into KDE in any way. All right, next up, K-Contacts. This is part of the KDE framework, so you guessed it, it's a bunch of header files, and this is stuff for uh, address book uh, functions. Um, addresses, address list, calendar URL, client, PID map, contact group, email, field, field group, gender, geo, IMPP, key, lang, nickname, note, so all of these things, phone number, you know, all this is all, these are all entities that you can use throughout different applications like kaddressbook, kmail, korganizer, kpilot, and so on. kcore add-ons. kcore add-ons provides classes built on top of cutecore to perform various tasks such as manipulating mime types, auto-saving files, creating backup files, 
generating random sequences, performing text manipulation, and so on. So these are K-Core add-ons. In other words, it's not add-ons for KDE, it's add-ons for Qt Core. And Qt Core is the C++, or, or part of the C++ um, framework, really, that KDE itself is based on. So KDE, in a way, I hope I don't say anything too controversial here, KDE, in a way, is has always been an extension of cute and so you've got a lot of cute stuff that honestly a lot of cute programmers are very very familiar with um, I have had the pleasure of being um, both at conferences and at workplaces where there were, were large groups of, of of cute programmers like that's what they were they were programmers who knew C++ and cute like that was that was their specialty and so they they know those libraries and and kde takes those libraries and then staples a bunch of other stuff on top of it and and as long as you're including cute and kde then you have a kde application so kcore add-ons are add-ons to the the core of of cute which uh is kind of a a big deal because it it does have a lot of the basic really really basic data types that you're that you're using very often when you're building you know when you're assembling like your window um a lot of that stuff comes from cute core or at least it did when i was playing around with it. um k crash k crash provides support for intercepting and handling application crashes crashes are um well they're a necessary part of life they happen things crash frankly i have had mixed mixed experiences with crashes um obviously there are lots of different types of crashes sometimes it's a little quirk a little glitch sometimes it's something that freezes the application window sometimes it closes the application window suddenly out from under you sometimes it closes it and ends the process sometimes it closes it and leaves a zombie process on accident sometimes it crashes your whole desktop sometimes it crashes your whole kernel you know all kinds of crashes right and and that can be that they're never great they're never fun so k crash is a thing that that ideally mitigates what you have to go through when a crash occurs. Uh, we've already talked about Dr. Conkey a little bit. Um, Kcrash is just, it's a header file, so it's got stuff to try to, again, deal with like sort of intercepting and handling application crashes. Obviously, crashes are difficult to plan for as a developer. You it is difficult, you know, you can plan for, like, exceptions in your code, you can plan for, for unexpected things to happen, or unexpected output or input to be received, but a, an actual crash, where, where, like, we're, we're off the rails, we're, we're outside the, the, off the track, then it's really hard to predict, and if you can predict it, then you could probably plan to make sure that it didn't crash, so I don't know, I, I very much respect developers who who write things like k crash and dr conkey and and other things like that 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 really do try to sort of soften the the experience around a crash because it's it's not something that anyone wants to experience and it is something that that happens and and sort of the the the, the eternal question is 
how do how do how do we make it how do we make it better? Sometimes the only way to make it better is to make it reportable, or or to intercept it and to capture the output right before the crash or right after the crash or whatever. So there are ways to try to mitigate it, try to make it a little bit, try to at least make it useful. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay, almost time for a coffee break, but let's do one more. Now one more is Kcron. Kcron's a a little bit of a tricky one. Um, when I when I first came across the the entry uh, in Varlog packages, you kind of look through it, and it claims it says Kcron is a module for scheduling programs to run in the background. It is a graphical user interface to Cron, the Unix system scheduler. So that seems pretty straightforward. It's a graphical user interface for Kcron. So go to the application menu, type in Kcron. Nowhere to be found. Doesn't exist. Okay, well, maybe it's more like, I don't know, maybe something's wrong with K application menu and, and it's just not finding it. So how about if I just type in kcron on, in my terminal? No, there's no such command. Which kcron? Nope, doesn't exist. Okay, so you go to the var log uh, listing and where, what, where, did I, where did I put it? There it is. Uh, kcron and scroll through and there's just, there's documentation. There are some... Uh, there's a library, there's a share, some, some locales, no binaries, no, no user bin, nothing like that. So, all right, let's look at this, um, the library thing here. Where was that? There it is in user lib 64, lib exec, k auth, kcron helper. That's not useful. Lib 64, cute five plugins, kcm underscore cron dot s o. Now you remember KCM, if you'll recall, those are the KDE config manager or something, or modules or something like that. And I don't remember how far we got down that path because I think there was another thing that I was going to talk about. But anyway, KCM, as it turns out, it's kind of like um, sort of modular sets of applications that kind of, let's say, get embedded in other applications. And long story short is that KCron is a KCM module uh, or a kc module or a k config module whatever they're called and it, it's it the, the the location that you would find it it's not an application on its own it is um tucked away in the system settings application so if you go to k application launch uh, settings or system settings whatever you prefer and then that launches and i think by default i don't know what where's the What's the default view of that thing these days? I, I don't know. I've already clicked away from it. Now I don't remember what it was here. I'm relaunching it. So by default, oh, I guess it's just wherever you, that's, I, I didn't click. It was just wherever you left off. Okay. So, um, left-hand column, bunch of different, bunch of different, um, bunch of different listings of, of potential settings. There's a search field. So let's look for Kcron. Kcron, no, doesn't come up. There's no Kcron here, but there is a Kcron here. Why can't we find this stupid thing? Well, if you do a lot of searching on the internet, you'll discover that obviously Kcron is a KCM module or whatever uh, embedded in system settings, startup and shutdown, task scheduler. And I've just gotten a warning here. It says, welcome to the task scheduler. No mention of Kcron. You can use this application to schedule programs to run in the background, schedule a new task now. Click on the tasks folder, select edit new from the menu. Okay, so that's Kcron. Is It's the task scheduler in 
system settings in startup and shutdown, and then you can go into task scheduler and, and schedule arbitrary events. I'm not going to do that right now. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You, you, you can, you can do personal cron or system cron, which I think is quite nice. I don't know whether or not that really belongs in system settings, system settings, personal cron. I don't know if that matches up for me personally, but I think it is nice that this kind of respects the fact that users do have access to cron so they can set their own sort of, uh, things here. I don't know if, if like, if I was adminning a computer and I was handing someone this computer, I, I don't know that they could look at this and tell the difference between modules within system settings for which they need some kind of administrative privilege versus things that they're allowed to play with and change for themselves. I think there's definitely, definitely a, a little bit of a gap there between things you're not allowed to do in system settings versus what things you are allowed. It's not just a KDE problem. I think it's a, a very widespread operating system problem. People don't seem to design the OS, even multi-user OSs, for multi-users or rather for an admin user split. And I think that's cognitively, I think that's difficult. I think it's difficult to open up an application that's managing the settings of your computer and not really understand whether you're going to be able to click into something and you're going to be prompted for some ad, ad, admin password that you have no way of knowing or, or, you know, you have no sort of right to know according to your admin. Uh, versus what you what you can and should and are welcome to change, like your desktop background or which network maybe is your active network. Maybe that's not something you can control. Um, your configuration of your mouse, yeah, you're probably allowed to do that and so on. So I, I think that's that's problematic. Like I say, that's it's not a KDE problem. It's an OS problem. I think there could be better definitions or, or just better separation around what you're going to need a password for. What's safe to, to experiment with, I guess, is really what I'm asking. Um, although I, I think there, you know, maybe there's an argument that maybe the other side of that coin is, well, if we show them everything, then, then they'll have to click around on everything to discover which they have access to. And maybe that's a good thing, because otherwise maybe they wouldn't think to click on uh, adding a printer. And surprise, surprise, they can add a printer because they've been granted that permission, whereas uh, changing their network, no, they're not allowed to do that because uh, we want them. We, we want to make sure that they're only on this approved network or whatever. I'm just making up scenarios now. Anyway, that's that's the KC section of the KDE packages. We're done that. KCron was the last one. Next is KD. KDAV, K, KDEV, K this, K that, uh, D. So we will do that. We'll start that. I don't know, next next episode or something. Let's go grab a coffee together. We'll come back. I want to talk a little bit about Magia. Because I haven't I haven't talked about Magia in a while. I'm gonna talk about Magia. Let's go get coffee. Welcome back. 
is that coffee that you have? Why, I'm sure it is. I'm glad that you've gotten yourself some coffee, gotten myself some, and we should talk about Magia, because I haven't talked about that in a while. I have said uh, fairly recently, I don't know, within the last year or so, that on my personal laptop, my or not my personal laptop, my work laptop, which is also my personal laptop, I don't have a laptop, I have my work laptop, on that machine I run RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, 9.0. And I've I've said on this show that that RHEL is is a functional operating system for personal use now. You can use you can install RHEL, you'll get absolutely nothing you need in the repositories. I mean, well not absolutely, you'll get like LibreOffice, things like that. Um but you won't, you know, very sort of office centric types of things. Maybe some developer stuff if you activate uh, a certain repository within their you know, base OS, app stream, supplemental. You you in you enable one of those, and I think there's the other one, um, Code Ready uh, workspaces. You enable one of those uh, repositories. You can install some extra applications that you didn't see initially, but generally it's very server focused. And then you know also sort of as a consolation prize, you also get some office types of applications. Not really what I'm into. So Flatpak has changed the way that I use RHEL, and, well, it changes the fact that I can use RHEL, and, and so I install a lot of applications as Flatpaks on RHEL, and I enjoy the same kind of stability that I enjoy on Slackware, which I run on my my desktop here that I'm recording on, of course. Um, and, and, and I, and, you know, it's on my laptop. It's my work laptop. It's running RHEL. It's got flat pack applications, everything I need. I mean, everything from, I don't know, you know, like text editors, IDEs, uh, although actually the IDE that I use, I just installed a slash opt. So that kind of doesn't even count. Firefox, I installed a slash opt as well. There's a bunch of stuff, I guess, that I installed a slash opt, but anyway, Flatpak does provide me with a bunch of other things that I do use, like uh, video editors and media players and other stuff. I don't even know what I have installed in this thing. Uh, but anyway, you know, the things that I do on computers, I can do on this laptop, and it, it works quite well, and it is on RHEL. Um, and, and that's different for me, because in the past, if you'd asked me what I used, I would have said, oh, I'm, I'm a Slackware user, and I usually have a computer running Fedora as well. That would have been what I would have said. And and lately, that just hasn't been... And that's, I mean, I'm talking like up until, you know, I don't know, a couple of years ago, that's what I would have said, honestly. Um, but lately, Fedora, I've just had to come to terms with the fact that it just moves too fast for me. I, I am not at a place in my life where I want unexpected behavior out of my computers. And there was a time in my life when the fast pace of Fedora was exciting and and it was almost like, why wouldn't you want that? Like, if you sat down at a computer and everything worked, what what, what do you do on your computer? Like, what what's left to do? And nowadays, I've I I do stuff on my computer, and I want it to to work. That's my primary in, in interest. And I think there is a, a weird, subtle difference between thinking to yourself, "Oh, I use Linux," versus oh, "I use a computer." Because once you've run Linux long enough, that you sort of you you no longer think about oh, I use Linux, then what you're left with is, I use a computer. And there's there's no the, there's no significance to the fact that that computer runs Linux. It's just, that's your computer. It happens to run Linux, but I mean, that's your computer. And so I think at the when, when you stop thinking about, oh, I use Linux, and you're just using a computer, then 
And I, I think possibly what you are looking for is the computer part of Linux. So you're, you're looking for the part that, that you turn it on and it does all the things that you want the computer to do. That that is that's what you're looking for and that's where i am i'm i just i don't use linux I, I do use linux i don't use linux i just i use my computers they happen to be running slackware and rel in this case um and as as i said before the coffee break magia now i'm not using magia on a daily basis to be honest it's it's a project that i like to check in with um when Mandriva ended tragically. Uh, I mean, tragically because Mandriva was really great, and it was a pity to lose Ma Mandriva. But w when it ended, uh, Magia forked that project and announced that they were going to continue it. Now there is another fork of that project called Open Mandriva. I do try to check in with Open Mandriva every now and again, but I have to admit that my brain—it's got Magia pretty much lodged into it since since then, really. Um, and so I, I just. I go to Magia before I even remember Open Mandriva exists. And it's just, it's not saying anything about Open Mandriva. It's just saying Magia is the thing that I have in my head um, when I think of what's up with Mandriva these days. I think Magia. Okay, so there's Magia. And Magia is a very nice little distribution. Of course, I've gone on record saying that I think Linux has too many distributions and that we need to scale back, not because distributions you know that choice is not good I, I like choice um i just think that the distribution model is broken so i would much rather for instance magia just be a set of repositories and some custom apps that you could install on the generic linux base that you know doesn't really exist right now um but anyway there's you know the delivery mechanism is what it is right i mean i it's a fantasy world to say we're, we're going to just have a base linux thing that you install and then you get to choose the custom you know the the customize your experience packages and these customize your experience packages are what we now call distributions uh that doesn't exist so the distribution model is you go to a website you download the image the iso image or the dot img image you put that onto an sd card you you or a USB stick rather. You boot your computer and you install the OS. So that's that's how we do it. So that's how you get Magia. No surprise there. You go to Magia, you download the distribution, you install it on a computer. And I've done that on a spare computer that I have in a wardrobe that runs you know whatever kind of server stuff that I want to it to run. But I also have a keyboard and mouse over there. So uh, every now and again I go back there into the wardrobe. And, um, and well, I open the wardrobe and then there's a shelf and in, on the shelf is this computer and a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse. Uh, and I've got Magia on that computer right now. And so I've been messing around with Magia quite a bit. And I've, you know, once again, I'm just reminded of how great a little distribution it is. And, you know, I mean, th there was a time where a distribution was essentially a different desktop or a the same desktop but configured a little bit differently instead of the panel being at the bottom it's at the top or the instead of it being at the top it's on the bottom or or instead of going to system settings you go to control center something like that and i you know i mean when you're new to linux i mean that is kind of what a distribution is um so saying that oh magia is a great little distribution what does that mean like what you you like the theme well i do actually like the theme i, I like the well i like the branding i like the cauldron with little bubbles out of it i think that's very clever um because mandriva used to call their their next the the thing that was next was the cauldron it was always 
that was, you know, Fedora uses Rawhide, Debian uses Sid, I think. Um, and then Mandriva uses Cauldron or used Cauldron. So Magia took the Cauldron branding and, and ran with it. And I think it's quite clever. Um, but the, the big deal about Magia for me is the difference between Fedora and RHEL, where RHEL has essentially nothing in its repositories and Fedora has essentially everything in its repositories, except it doesn't really because it's, it's, it has what it can have, but then it's got RPM fusion. So there's, there's software there. So you end up finding everything for Fedora. And again, not everything, but you find a lot of stuff for Fedora. So there's a lot of stuff for Fedora, very little for RHEL, and Magia sits square in the middle of those two extremes. Magia has a very rich repository, lots of stuff available, not everything, but a lot of stuff. So in terms of it just sort of being like your standard middle-of-the-road Linux distribution, which doesn't sound very exciting. That sounds kind of almost like a, a backhanded uh, compliment, but it's actually just an, a, an upfront compliment. It is a, a compliment. Like, if you want a distribution that has a reasonable amount of software ready for you to use from its little software center store, Magia is one of those distributions. It has got a lot of great software for you, already packaged, ready to go. You can install it through its little text text heavy application store. So in other words, it's not using the pretty pictures that appstream.xml or whatever it is provides uh, things like GNOME Store or no GNOME Software or KDE Discover. It's it's a lot more like a uh, synaptic in feel. You know, it's just like a bunch of text. But it's, it works, it's functional, it, it, it does the job, which is a little bit more than you can say of GNOME software, you know, about 25% of the time. Um, GNOME software is great, but it takes a lot of setup to get it into the great state uh, where you can actually use it, and even then sometimes it gets a little bit confused. So I think there's work to be done on GNOME software yet, and I think that the Mandriva, the Magia choice to just continue using its little uh, Jack uh, Drake thing, whatever it's called, uh, is is perfectly acceptable. Dragora? No. Anyway, whatever it's called, I think it's great that it uses it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not super pretty, but it, it, it is highly, highly functional, which is what you want. Now, there are extra repositories for Magia as well, so you can find more software if you enable more software repositories. But I just think as as a baseline, like, expectation that there's a lot there and you can add flat pack onto magia as well so you could you could do that too you could you can have the benefit of a well-populated repository along with the the well-populated flat hub offering for a bunch of the applications i am not doing that on my magia install because it really is serving primarily as a as just a little home test server right now. It's a very old computer. I rescued it out of a trash can. Not literally. Someone gave it to me instead of putting it in the trash can. I have literally rescued things out of trash cans before, but this was not one of them. Um, so it is a very old computer, which by the way is another nice feature of, of Magia. They do 32-bit. Uh, Fedora, I think, has officially dropped or is talking about it dropping 32-bit support. So the fact that Magia is just ardently continuing 32-bit support is vital. I mean vital. It, it is one of those services that I just think almost 
a moral service. I mean, it is morally important for Linux to have 32-bit support. There are way too many computers out there that are 32-bit capable only. And we just, that has to be, Linux has to be there for those computers. Magia is a very nice option for that. I, you know, you might have to install a lighter, a lightweight desktop, and Magia makes that easy as well. They, they have GNOME, they have KDE, and they have XFCE. And I'm running XFCE, XFCE, that's actually why I installed Magia, because I eventually, in this Slackware, as I go through all the packages, eventually I'm going to hit the XFCE desktop, and I have very little experience with it. But as of you know, a couple of weeks ago, whenever I installed this thing, um, I'm I'm gaining experience with XFCE, and I I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're not talking about XFCE yet. But it is really really nice. I'm finally seeing what other people see in XFCE. Really nice. So Magia, it's there. It has software. It has 32-bit support. It's got the a really great little control center. I love control center from Mandriva, and I love it in Magia. It's just one of those things that is. It, it's got all of the all of the things that you would expect it to have are there. Now it does not solve the the problem that I identified earlier with with system settings and control panels in general, where users don't really know what they have permission to do in in that control center. It's it's just a gamble as to whether you're going to click on something to configure it and it's going to ask you for an admin password or whether it's going to let you do the thing. It, it doesn't really solve that problem, but it is a really nice control center, which I have a lot of fond memories from Mandriva about, and it's just so great to see it being continued here in Magia. Magia uses DNF now, not URPM. That makes me a little sad, like quote unquote sad, not really sad, but nostalgically, like it's sad to see URPM go away. But of course you can just alias URPMI for DNF install, URPMQ, DNF search, and so on. So not not that big of a deal. Uh, it's, it's actually quite nice to have DNF. Um, DNF is a very capable package manager. It's it, you know, to me, it's zipper level great, and zipper is or was when I last tried it really, really great from OpenSUSE. So it, it's quite nice. Um, yeah, so Magia, it's it really is. It's it's a. I I feel like the pace of its release cycle is perfect. I think that its repositories are very reasonable, and I think that it's a really, really well assembled distribution. I'm highly recommending it. I really am. You know, and I'm not recommending it say over slackware i'm not recommending it even over rel or 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 over fedora it's just i'm just saying that it is a reasonable option it, it's one of those like especially if you are looking for a good rpm distribution an rpm based distribution magia is i think a stellar a stellar option i mean you really only have rel fedora magia slash open mandriva whichever you go with or OpenSUSE. I mean, that's those are your options, and all of those are strong. Like that's the thing. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what I'm trying to say about distributions. Like those are really strong distributions. W- while if you were to say, well, I want to go with a .deb based in- uh, distribution, then yes, you have lots and lots and lots of lots of choices, but the quality of those choices varies quite a bit. Um, but the RPM-based distributions, it seems that, like, it's kind of filtered its way down to a certain select few, but they're really strong select few. They're, they're like, really good offering of, of distributions. 
So Magia is one of those. It's middle of the road. It's got a nice deliver. It's got a good pace. It's not going to release a new version every other, you know, every other year. It, it, it's a really nice pace of, of release. It's got solid repositories for all the software that you absolutely need, a lot of the software that you just want, and then you've got obviously options outside of that. So if you're if you're looking for something like Fedora or Rel, but you don't want to use either of those, or like CentOS, Rel, whatever, you don't want to use those, try Magia. It's a good one. I think that's all I have to say. That's probably it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open I don't need to remind you of the necessity for absolute security.